Are you going to pull over? I thought you're you're not pulling over, Bob. I'm not pulling He's over. He's a passenger. No, this is, welcome to the mobile week. I am a passenger in my car. We are we are traveling this week, but uh, welcome everybody. This is uh, Legal Tech Week for November 17th, and what I am going to do is hand over hosting uh, Zoom hosting duties anyway, if not show hosting duties to Mickey Black. I think we just lost Bob. I don't know if I, just, I have hosting duties yet. <laughs> Bob is the master of segues, but that's. <laughs> I am here. You can't hear me? Well, you froze for a while, a little bit. Can you hear me now? All right. I think I have. Nikki, did you get a notice? I think yeah, I got the notice that I'm a co-host. Okay. Yeah. okay. I'll okay. fill in the gaps when you disappear like that. How about? Right. Yeah. Or I, I might even just tune out after a couple of minutes. But uh, anyway, uh, we've got uh, the, the usual suspects here. Some of us uh, aren't able to make it this week, but um, uh, we'll, uh, we can all do a, a quick introduction and get into some of the, a lot, a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Uh, and uh, so why don't we get going on the introductions? Uh, Steve, you want to kick us off? Sure. Steve Embry here, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads about legal technology, legal innovation, and whatever else strikes my fancy. Nikki. I'm Nikki Black. I'm the... Uh... Uh, head of SME and external education in my case and law pay. I um, write legal tech columns for Above the Law ABA Journal, The Daily Record, and I also oversee the reports for um, that we write in the my case and law pay side of things. And I also am now omnipotent and I have complete control over this entire proceeding. <laughs> it's exciting, a lot of power. So be nice to Nikki or she'll pick you up. We have to be nice, yeah. Uh, and then Jean. Uh, I'm Jean O'Grady. I write the Dewey B Strategic blog, which covers mostly legal research and knowledge topics. And I also write a monthly column for Legal Tech Hub. And last but not least today, Stephanie. I'm Stephanie Wilkins. I'm the editor-in-chief of Legal Tech News at ALM. All right, so uh, this is a week in which uh, all of uh, us you see on this call were down in New York City together for a briefing from Thomson Reuters, uh, which they uh, presented as uh, a, a pretty major set of announcements from them. Uh, we can we can wait and hear from the panel whether they agree that they were a major set of announcements, but uh, the, the key one that they were announcing this week was their AI-assisted uh, research for Westlaw Precision. Uh, and uh, then there were also some announcements regarding co-counsel, which of course they acquired earlier this year with their acquisition of case text and uh, also some, some uh, teasers about what might be coming in practical law down the road. Uh, but uh, Gene, I mean, you're, you're always our, our, our legal research expert. Sure, I'm happy to kick it off. Um, look, it is doing something fundamentally different in a way than what their the Westlaw Edge does. And, and even I introduced the topic in my post by saying Westlaw started out by just publishing headnotes, searchable headnotes. And what Westlaw became was something fundamentally different. So I feel like we are at the beginning of a fundamentally new Westlaw. 
So it the the search does deliver an analysis and case results, but the interface to me seemed incredibly bare bones. And the other thing I found shocking, although Mike Dane, the direct, the head of product, said lawyers didn't complain about this, was that there is actually a button that says, email me the results. Now, anybody who's been used to instantaneous research, that is a fundamentally different research experience. Um, and you know what he said is, well, this is saving lawyers hours. They can wait the two minutes. They also admitted they're working on the speed. But that was the first thing that I found, at least in the law firms where I've worked, asking lawyers to go from instantaneous results to email me the results almost seemed that seemed quite shocking to me. And then there were another sort of editorial display issues that were a little bit like they don't actually have inline citations. So you can see what cases are they citing to. You can't click on links. You click on a, on a footnote, which takes you to a link so you can get to everything. But it's very much a different research experience. There are no sidebars. There aren't, you know, West, West La Edge is a platform full of auxiliary, auxiliary functionality and related things that you can do once you get your research results. And this is very much a, a, a completely new bare bones out first launch day one interface. And I have no doubt it's gonna change dramatically over the coming years, but good for them. They got it launched. Um, and, and I think the, the results did look, you know, it, it did, I could see where giving, well, here's another thing that I did like about, it doesn't actually require prompts. The way they said a lawyer should input the request is think about how you would give this assignment to an associate. And I thought that, well, that's, that's something any lawyer can do. Just write out the specifics in terms of jurisdiction, who are the parties? What are what 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 are the outcomes you're looking for? What are the issues you're looking to to discover? And then it takes it and it summarizes a result after spending a couple of minutes going through all of the Westlaw data in in terms of both statutes and case law. It does not look at any of their secondary source materials. So I'd I'd be interested in hearing what other people have to say about it. Nikki, you may have to take over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it may that be your show. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I until you brought those things up, um, Gene, I hadn't even really... I was more interested in how in the output and the quality of the output and um, the fact that they did provide the citations, but you know, you raised some really interesting points and it, in terms of how it is really an incredibly different experience from what we're all used to. And it, you know, it's, it's like you're choosing one experience over the other almost. And I'm not sure uh, how that's going to play out as lawyers um, and other legal professionals start using these tools. Um, but th those are some really interesting points that I hadn't really fully uh, thought through. I don't know if anyone else had some. Uh, but, but my overall take from the session itself was that um, 
they're clearly leveraging generative AI and co-counsel across their products in some really interesting ways. Um, and the fact that, uh, you know, both Lexus and Thomson Reuters are doing this essentially at the same time um, in so many different ways across so many different products is just an indication of how quickly things are going to change and how this is at sooner rather than later, just going to sort of become this uh, overlay or skin, if you will, on all the products that we use, legal tech or otherwise, and soon you're not even going to uh, almost recall days when it wasn't there. But that, that's, that's really what I walked out of there thinking the most about, a little bit more of a big picture uh, view of it and how it fits into, um, generative AI fits into everything we do overall. But I thought you raised some super interesting points and I got to think about those some more. Um, yeah, the user <laughs> the user experience question is an interesting one to me because I mean a new user experience isn't necessarily bad, but I guess it's just how do you introduce it and how do you it sort of reminds me of, you know, like every time like like Facebook or, or Gmail came out with a new layout and everyone was like, I hate it, I want the old one. But then eventually you got used to it. So is there if it's a drastic change, is there a better way to maybe slowly do that change rather than completely switch it up all at once? Um, because I think eventually it would probably end up to where they're going with it, or they might add a few features back in that they were too quick to take out. I, I'm sure they'll be adding new features in, but I think this was a rush to the market. I I think that it was primarily driven by they needed to get, you know, Precision had launched a year ago. They wanted to make Precision better and leverage what they had gotten with Case Text. And, and I understand it's... A, it's a it, it's a it makes sense as a business decision, but I do think that in getting it out so quickly, it it didn't have all the things people have come to expect from a Thomson Reuters research experience. That's all I'm saying. I think. Can you hear me? Am I okay? Now we yeah, can. I mean, I, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I think one of the uh, key points here is to keep in mind that this is that and, and they say this and Lexus says this about its AI integrated research that. This is a, a supplement to, not a replacement for traditional research, and so it, it's not going to be exactly, you know, head to head with the, the sort of the classic precision or Westlaw experience. But uh, I, I did think it was interesting at some point during our briefing. I asked them about, you know, what what types of research would you start using? What kind of research sessions would you start using the AI assistant, and what kind would you? You know, still go back to the standard uh, precision interface for, and it turned out they've got on their right on their website a whole list of the things you don't want to do on this uh, on the AI assisted research. Uh, you know, it's starting from simple things like do a citation search. It won't work for a citation search, interestingly enough. Uh, and, and which even, is know, a going, very basic feature. <laughs> you would think. Right. I am. <laughs> uh, and, and from there on up to some more sophisticated. Uh, Types of searches, so that was, I think, somewhat revealing. But I, I agree with uh, also with what Nikki was saying that this, I think, the kind of the way I put it in, in my own post is it's a little, little bit of a one-two punch between having this integrated AI research assistant in precision, but then also having access to the co-counsel skills and being able to uh, those throughout its which they haven't really done yet. I mean, at this point, it's a button in the co-counsel and you still have to have a co-counsel. Um, but if, if they're able to integrate that more more closely and, and throughout their different products, then 
then you've really got a really kind of a powerful set of uh, both AI tools combined with some of the more traditional research tools overall that maybe does give them a little bit of an edge over. I mean, I would kept thinking to myself, how is this different from what Lexus has already done or what VLEX has been talking about doing? So I don't know. I mean, no, I'm I, guessing. Uh, oh, go ahead, Steve. No, I was just going to say I, I didn't. I didn't get down, you know, into the details as much as you did, Gene, and you, you made some good points, but just sort of generally, you know, three things that I came out of there with. One, I was I was sort of pleased to see how uh, the case text and co-counsel and Thomson Reuters people were, I mean, they seemed to like, like each other and they seemed to be talking with each other and exchanging ideas even while we were there. And so, Dave, you if know, you gave me $650 million, I would like to <laughs> Right. Yeah, well, I guess that's true. But I, I was more concerned, you know, when when the acquisition happened, that we, we'd, we would have seen the last of something branded as co-counsel and case text. And we might ultimately, but they seem to be, you know, they seem to be working hard together. The other thing that I kind of liked is they they did articulate what I would sort of say as a moonshot visionary kind of goal. And that is within five years, we want every warrior to have an AI assistant on their desktop. And you know, I, I had not heard anybody else articulate that quite, quite as simply as and aggressively as they did, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. And then uh, the, the prompt engineering piece and how they were trying to, to appear to move away from requiring lawyers and legal professionals to have sort of this prompt engineering training. And like that's something completely different that you, a skill you have to master and move toward talking to an AI assistant, just like you would a colleague or an associate, you know, if they can achieve those kind of those three things in the future, I think it, it will lead to some really, really cool and interesting stuff, whether they can or not, I don't know, but, but those were the things that kind of stood out to me. You know, it's my impression that the AI assistant is like an add-on to another Westlaw platform. So you can get out of the AI experience and pull citations. I'm sure you can go to another part of the platform and do the traditional things. I'm just saying there's an awful lot of things you can't do once you're within the AI experience. All those other functionalities haven't gone away. They are just not part of what's happening or adjacent to the AI research experience. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And, uh, um, you know, we haven't quite talked about it yet, but I mean, the other, we were, we were last week on the show talking about the fact that uh, we, we happened to know that there was going to be news coming from, from Lexus pretty much uh, on, on the same day as uh, the news coming from Thomson Reuters. And they, Lexus had just recently announced the, the commercial launch of its Lexus Plus AI, and then last week announced, or this week rather, announced a couple of uh, uh, enhancements to it or additions to it. Um, I mean, does anybody have any any thoughts? I don't know if anybody's had a chance really to look at the Lexus thing, but kind of how, are, are they, are they, are the tops and Reuters and the Lexus one apples and oranges, or do they compare against each other, or, or what, what do we think? Well, I think the first thing that Lexus talked about, the summarization feature, the snapshot, that is a very practical application that's related more to CourtLink than to Lexus Research. And so 
at large firms, lots of us do things where we monitor alerts, primarily for business development, but sometimes for ongoing cases. You're monitoring alerts. You want to know what's in a complaint. You want to be able to distribute. So it takes the complaints, it extracts the data, it puts them into a, to a digestible form. So that's more of an add-on to a Courtlink product. I, I, I think what you're really saying is, was it worth a big press release over these two things? And I think I'm, I'm just guessing that if Wessel hadn't been getting ready to do their big announcement, there wouldn't have been a big Lexus event for these two things last week. But, you know, somebody else. I, it, so I'd like someone else to comment on the other uh, plug-in courts, sorts of uh, product it, they showed. It did seem awfully coinc coincidental to me <laughs> the way it the way it kind of all came down. And I mean, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd, uh, my, my my view of what LexisNexis was talking about is a little bit colored by the. The, fact, the way that they went about it and the apparent sort of attempt to upstage what, what was coming down, but you know, all's fair in business, I guess. So, well, part, partly what I was asking was also uh, setting aside the news that they announced this week, just two or three weeks ago, that they announced their own, you know, AI integration, very similar to what Thomson Reuters announced this week. And I was wondering, uh, as between those two uh, integrations, those two uses of AI. You know, Thompson Reuters was trying to portray theirs as kind of first of its kind, uh, you know, in precedent setting, changing the industry, mm -hmm. uh, and yet ignoring the fact that its competitor had already come out with something very similar. I just wonder whether there was any reason to think that what Thompson Reuters introduced this week was kind of head and shoulders above what Lexus had already talked about, uh, or whether it was pretty much just uh, another flavor of the same, more or less the same thing. Well, for me, I, I don't think you can downplay the fact that um, the case text folks have were, were some of the first companies in the uh, at all <laughs> to have access, you know, early access to GPT-4. And when you're talking about um, this GPT technology, a few months access makes a difference at this point in terms of the speed that it's moving and familiarity and understanding how it's going to work and the quirks with it and how to, you know, develop with it. And so I think their access can't be understated um, and the difference that that makes. So for me, the, the, the highlight or the what really underscored, I mean, the reason I'm so interested in what Thompson Reuters is doing is because they acquired them and because those guys have been so passionate about AI all along and because they're the ones that are really leveraging it. So to, I, that really goes far to me. But then when I think about Lexus, one thing I've been uh you know, I've been covering AI for five years. You know, every new product that comes out, I've always been so excited about it. And oh, I was sort of yelling over from my corner about these AI things because I'm interested in it. And I was always really impressed with their early investment in it, you know, with Lex Machina and, um, you know, the way that they would talk to me about it. And so I've always been really excited in their early investment in it. And so I, what interests me the most is this kind of head to head between these two different approaches of investment and acquisition. And in the middle of this really exciting time where we're seeing this unbelievable technology roll out. We're seeing lawyers have a thirst for it and other legal professionals. And I almost don't care who's is better or who's doing what. It's the fact that they're both innovating and that they're leading the way and that there's so much more to come in the next five or six months, probably. And what's it going to look like in June? You know, where are we going to be? And what's, I think the practice of law is going to feel very different at that point. And so I'm less concerned about 
who did better or whose was more significant and kind of just more the direction that we're all headed personally. You and know, I agree. One, go ahead. Go ahead, Stephanie. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and I agree. And I'm like, I am intrigued by that case text uh, co-counsel piece too. But I think part of what feels a little bit exhausting and we're like, oh, which announcement was better this week is that people, I, not just these two companies, a lot of companies are constantly making announcements of like, oh, here's a new feature or we're going to launch this. And then now here's a new announcement that we're officially launched, even though it's no different substance than the we're going to launch announcement. So it's just sort of bombarding with every little new development. So, I mean, if you want to stack each announcement up against each other, it just gets exhausting. And I don't know if in the big picture, it really tells us anything. Like you were saying, Nikki, I'm really curious to see where we go. I love that everything is moving forward, but the it, it's getting, you know, the cycle uh, is getting a little, it's getting to be a lot uh, I think part of the interesting thing that's going on is based on whatever people seem to say is that the law firms and lawyers are so interested in this technology. So they're, they're like clamoring for, for new products. And so Thomson Reuters and Lexus Nexus or VLEX are scrambling. You know, we, we finally got them interested in technology. Now, now we got to do something, you know, we got to give them something before they go away. <laughs> so, I think part of this, you know, I mean, we've never had we've never had a situation where where law firms were saying, "Please give me, please bring me some technology." I mean, it's like uh, it's like the it's like the dog that finally caught the car. You know? <laughs> I also want to make two other observations. One, and these are maybe a little bit nuanced, but I definitely have the sense that Lexus. AI does require something more like a prompt because they actually talked about having to train people how to do prompts appropriately. And so that gives me concern. I, 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 I am going to be talking to them about how they do trials and how they get lawyers to um, become familiar with the prompts. And, you know, I, I haven't had that discussion yet, but that didn't seem to be an issue for the Westlaw product. They just said, you can just assume you can take a, a, a research assignment write it out that way and the so and 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 you can put that into the product both of them do have the ability to do follow up questions i think both of them said up to 8 but most hardly anybody ever does that the other distinction is i believe lexus is going to anybody who buys their ai product is going to get everything they're not selling the drafting features se separately Lexus is selling you the AI research product and I think a little bit of drafting, but co-counsel all the, you know, the, the, um, all the other drafting and analysis tools, those are all a separate package of products. And with Lexus, if you upgrade to AI, you're going to, and that I think is going to give them a certain amount of market advantage because why would anybody go out and buy co-counsel if they're getting all the Lexus, all the AI functionality for drafting if they upgrade to to Lexus AI, Lexus Plus AI. And Bob, and we still have the we still have the 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 strides that uh, Chat GPT Turbo or Plus is making, and Microsoft with Copilot is making that many of the functions that you would might have to pay a Thomson Reuters or Lexus Nexus at some point you may be able to get other places. Yeah. Or in cheaper. your DMS or someplace yeah. else, you know. Right. 
I mean, which, you know, as we were talking before, yeah, we came on, said- the, the, the escalating costs of all this is I worry about because big firms can't afford it. Big firms get all the advantages of it. And yet, you know, all the small firms are like, we can't afford this stuff. So um, a lot of interesting well, questions. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, moving on to another topic, uh, I think we've, we've uh, talked this one out, but uh, not to get off of GPT, of course, uh, because there's a lot more to talk about, but uh, uh, sort of some related, maybe, uh, ethics news, <laughs> legal ethics news around GPT. Uh, one, first, there's a, a couple of uh, legal ethics, well, an legal ethics opinion and, and uh, some other uh, efforts to set some legal ethics standards around uh, the use of uh, from Scott GPT and other AI, generative AI tools. But maybe before we get to that, there also happened to be uh, news of GPT once again, or generative AI at least, once again taking the bar exam, this time the legal ethics exam, and passing. Uh, Stephanie, you want to talk about that? Or? Yeah, sure. So, latest research is from the contract company Legal On Technologies, uh, similar building off of what the earlier in the spring what they did with having the different GPT models take the bar exam. This time they pitted different large language models against each other on the MPRE, which is a little bit harder to do because there's no set, it's hard to get questions out there, the answering or the passing range is scaled or whatever, but they they figured out a way to feed each of the large language models they tested, a hundred different tests of 60 questions pulled from a group of 500 questions by a professor who teaches, you know, professional responsibility. And it found out that GPT-4 from OpenAI and then Claude 2 from Anthropic passed better than the average, the, 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 the average passing range they were able to figure out, whereas GPT-3.5 failed it and so did Google's uh, Palm 2 Bison. Um, and this was zero shot testing. So it wasn't like they in- input all the questions in advance. It was just taking them as they currently exist and put it gave, fed them each these hundred different tests. Um, and they're quick to say that, you know, this does not mean that GPT or any of these AIs are ethical and to replace lawyers, but it, they're highlighting it as an ability to further enhance the way lawyers work and maybe draw point lawyers to good sources for ethical materials if they have ethical questions. Um, so I just thought, I mean, I thought it was interesting because that was not a test that they had submitted the large language models to before. I, I thought it was interesting. I couldn't quite make, I mean, when, in the earlier, you know, back when uh, Dan Katz uh, and Michael Bomaruto did it originally and then, and then with Pablo later, uh, I thought that seemed more more significant then only because it sort of pointed to the ability of, of this technology to kind of do legal reasoning or something. At this point, it felt a little bit more like a publicity stunt and a little less like it was really telling us anything at all. But but I, I, I like your take on this stuff because I think it, you put it in a better context than I was, than I was thinking about it. But uh, I don't know. Anybody else yeah. have any thoughts on... I mean, I do agree with you that this one feels more as a curiosity or an also it could be used for, whereas the other one, the ability to mimic legal reasoning as opposed to ethical was a lot. I mean, it, it did seem a little bit more relevant. And so I agree with that. But it's still it's it's interesting and who knows what it means going forward. But I do love a good research study. 
Well, uh, for, for those lawyers who have uh, taken the MPRE and passed and are practicing, uh, there were a couple of uh, developments this week um, involving uh, legal ethics and use of generative AI. Nikki, you want to tell us about those, those developments? Yeah, sure. I haven't written about either of them yet, but they were notable enough that I thought I would use those as my um, uh, submissions this week. Um, and uh, Mark Palmer is the one that actually, I believe, brought both of them to my attention. Um, so kudos to Mark. Uh, the first one was um, that the Florida Bar actually drafted a proposed advisory AI ethics opinion, um, which uh, previously, uh, which I had written about and shared here, uh, they had um, previously uh, mentioned that they were going to be doing that. And then they had shared uh, questions that they you know, sought answers to some questions that they planned to answer, if you will. Um, but I didn't realize that they had actually drafted their um, ethics opinion. So I put a copy to the, of that. And then the California Bar had posted a uh, previously um, a, a copy, a uh, proposed draft of their um, opinion that they'd be writing. And I just learned yesterday that they actually uh, published it. And and what the approach that they took, and I popped that in there too, the Bloomberg article about it that has a link, but the approach that the California Bar took was essentially um, providing guidelines or guidance, if you will, rather than um, an ethics opinion, uh, framing a number of different issues. So they basically said the um, right now, the regulations um, as they're written, the ethics rules suffice um, but we're going to provide this guidance on different topics to help lawyers and legal uh, lawyers navigate um, some of these issues. And I thought it was interesting. Um, it was longer than I would have liked because I, it, my biggest complaint, whenever any kind of new tech comes along, and granted, this is a significant new type of tech with some pretty interesting issues, but I feel like there is a... Um, in the, in the beginning, there's this knee-jerk reaction and a need to attack it from every angle and make it seem extraordinary, extraordinarily complex rather than just applying past precedent or um, interpretation of the rules and um, providing very narrow um, uh, determinations that don't withstand the test of time. And I think that they took some care to avoid that and tried to provide sort of more broad swaths with some kind of narrow, specific guidance when needed, but it still felt unnecessarily lengthy to me. <laughs> but that being said, um, it, uh, a lot of it was what you would expect, you know, uh, some guidance on confidentiality and only choosing trusted partners and making sure that you vet them and understand how they're going to handle your firm's data. Um, supervision stuff is really interesting to me. Um, and also, one, one of the most notable things that came from it um, that I thought was interesting was that billing and cost transparency. They said that when you use generative AI to create work product, you should charge for the actual time spent working, um, but not for the time saved by using AI. And in some ways I feel like that, I mean, you're only supposed to bill for the work that you've actually done. So that makes a lot of sense, but it's also um, interesting because maybe that fact alone is either going to deter people from using AI if they're so dead set on the billable hour or else help 
achieve the disruption of the, the billable hour and start encouraging lawyers to engage in um, using uh, flat fee billing instead. And I, I think I've said this in the past, but one really interesting opportunity I think is that when you take generative AI and this and AI uh, technology in general and apply it to a practice management system, for example, um, or your legal billing system and legal billing software, it can help you by looking at historically how different cases have um, looked in your firm, how long it's taken to handle them, similarities across those cases and how much money it actually, how many hours you actually build and help you come up with really good predictions about um, when a case comes in, maybe what a reasonable flat fee would be that would ensure that you don't lose money um, if it goes on too long. So it'll actually help you predict flat fees. And so I think that when you combine that with the time and cost uh, savings uh, uh, or the time savings and the efficiency gained from using generative AI to do legal research and conduct legal tasks, maybe that uh, those two things combined are going to kind of help. And in addition to this opinion, saying that you can't charge for the time saved, which I think makes sense. But again, maybe that's going to sort of start encouraging more flat fee billing in order to stay competitive on the market. So time will tell. But it's definitely um, uh, an opinion uh, or you know guidance worth taking a look at. And it'll be interesting to see what Florida's looks like once that um, comes out of uh, the proposed um, state that it's in and gets finalized. It would appear that Bob is no longer with us. So you are officially in charge, Nikki. <laughs> a lot of pressure. It's a lot of power. To <laughs> Quite frankly, if one of you makes me mad, I'm, I'm just sending you out the door. I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, I don't yeah, know. The, the not charging for time saved, which I mean, I get on its face is makes sense, but I feel like there's got to be, I mean, there's something more to it. Because I mean, I've also heard people say that, you know, so if these tools save time and it lets people actually use their expertise that much more, people will then up their billable hours because that subject matter expertise becomes even more valuable. I don't know. I just, I... I don't think the billable hour is so quick to be injured. No, I don't. I agree with you, Stephanie. And I mean, the, the way I've thought about it is, you know, for for those lawyers that are really talented and experienced and good at what they do, um, this will probably be a boon because if you ask most of them if they have time to do everything that they would like to do for their clients, most of them would say, we don't. We've got to do all this other stuff that I don't need to be doing. Uh, so that's, you know, uh, I think that should mean that they will, they will be able to bill more, but where I think the, the rubber will meet the road is, is the impact that these tools will have on the leverage model where, you know, I mean, lawyer, lawyers and law firms have made millions of dollars based on leverage. One, one partner and three associates work in a case. And now, you know, in the future, I wonder, it may be closer to one-to-one. -one. Um, so if you get to that, then you have to start thinking about how am I going to, how am I going to, the only way I can make that up is to begin charging on some sort of flat basis for tasks and projects, uh, as opposed to using a leverage model that assumes billable hours by multiple associates to staff a case. Well, and there, I just want to pinpoint that Dennis asked an interesting question in the chat that I want to get to. But first, I want to respond to um, what both of you just said. So as you were, I hadn't thought of, I hadn't thought, 
um, of what you had suggested, Stephanie, which is that they would bill, uh, increase their billable hour to make up that difference, if you will. But that's a really interesting point. Um, but then from the consumer, legal consumer's perspective, so you're going to try, you're seeking to hire an attorney for some complex um, litigation or a tax matter or whatever the case may be. And one law firm quotes you like $5,000 an hour to handle this case. Or the other law firm tells you like a smaller boutique firm that is using these tools to estimate flat fees fairly accurately and have gotten this down to a science because they're using generative AI and they're gonna use generative AI in the representation. So you've got $5,000 an hour because they're starting to up the ante to ridiculous hourly rates, let's say at this point, or you know, $20,000 for the whole case. And I, you know, so as a legal consumer, you're like, well, I don't know, let me, <laughs> let me think this through. Like, I know it's going to take more than four hours. And so I think maybe those kind of knee jerk reactions as well. I keep using that phrase, but to this technology, fine, we'll just charge more per hour. It actually may backfire in yeah. there and um, start supporting the more of a flat fee model. I don't think we're always going to use that, but I think that it's going to start making it more feasible for firms to use that. And then the other thing I just wanted to note, because I thought it was an interesting question, was that um, Dennis asked, uh, I can't find it now, but what if you, uh, can you, but can you charge for time wasted by not using those tools? And that's like an interesting issue. It's, I feel like it almost borders on, it gets to the issue of almost like malpractice, like overcharging, you know, so you refuse to use the tools, so you're overcharging your clients. Um, and well, you, well, you, to be super negative, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say there there is the ethical rule that requires a lawyer to charge a reasonable fee based upon time spent and I don't know whatever the factors are. And I mean, so it's a legitimate question at some point to ask if if you don't use these tools that would reduce the fee, is that still a reasonable fee? I don't know. It sort of gets to the old question that that. Bob Ambrosia used to always raise, and that is whether not using data analytics, litigation data analytics could be malpractice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and that's... he's back. I didn't know he was back. Sorry, Bob. Oh, I, I thought you were setting us up for the predicted discussion there. <laughs> um, no, but I was going to say that I think there will come a point where not using these AI tools will either be, you know, ethically wrong or could even be malpractice. But until we get there, I think, yes, it's a very valid question of if you refuse to use this, can you bill for that time? But I feel like it's just an accelerated version of how lawyers, law firms have been accused of padding their hours for a long time. I mean, there's a lot of repetitive work. You all have people working way above, way below their skill level and charging bigger hours for it. It's just, this might actually highlight that a lot more. Well, back when the legal automation uh automated legal research came along or, or digital legal research. <laughs> there was a big question because firms would try to charge a portion of the overhead to acquire the programs to the clients and clients raised holy hell about it. And so it's overhead. We're not going gonna to pay your, your Westlaw month annual fee. I mean, it's crazy. So I think that, I think the clients finally won out on that one, but it took a while as, they were law firms were scrambling to try to recoup the, the overhead cost. One thing I did want to mention that I uh, did not initially, when it came to supervision and diligence, which is another, um, the, the guidance, which is another important um, issue that I was curious how the ethics committees were going to handle it. The guidance emphasized that lawyers have to 
maintain a critical perspective when they use AI generated outputs and ensure accuracy and freedom from bias and never over rely on those tools at the expense of their judgment, which is, I, I think is a reasonable approach um, to kind of handling the hallucinations and accuracy. So I, I don't think they like went overboard with that one by any means. So Steve, did you, uh, you had a, a story, I don't know, a little bit related to law firm billing and hours and all of that stuff, uh, that Cravath uh, news that came out. You wanna talk about that? You're muted. Steve, you're muted. Sorry, I, can't, I haven't mastered this technology yet. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the story was, I, I can't, I think it was maybe Cassandra Croyer that, that, oh, she did the predicta. Uh, but anyway, Cravath announced that they were going to uh, have a non equity partner tier. And this has been going, I mean, this, these, this non equity business has been going on for several years. And it, it started. Uh, because you had a group of talented people and equity partners thought, well, we don't want to lose them, but we're not exactly sure that they should be partner. And so we'll create this new tier, which is really a glorified employee, right? I mean, not equity partner, I mean, means you you might as well be, be an associate except for the title and maybe they bump your pay. But now it's kind of turned into this, let's pull up the ladders and us equity guys, we can make a whole lot more money if we make all these people not equity partners. And besides that, if we don't like what they're doing, we can just get rid of them and, you know, that'll be the end of it. And it's, it's kind of mushroomed. Uh, uh, Joe Patrice on his above the law podcast did a really nice um, discussion of, of the problems associated with it. But the thing I was going to mention I just came back from speaking at a at a conference of managing partners of of mainly mid-sized law firms. And one of their big concerns was many associates these days aren't interested in, in making partner. And they you know seem to think that that you know was a bad thing. They weren't sure why. And I wonder whether this this change, you know, now we have this. This new tier, you have to, this new hoop, you have to jump through. You're an associate, you're a senior associate, then you became, become a non-equity partner. And then if you're really lucky, maybe you get to be an equity partner. And oh, by the way, when you become an equity partner, that doesn't necessarily mean what it once did. I mean, you're, you're not really protected like you once did if you have a bad year or two. Uh, most firms I know, I mean, they'll, they kick out equity partners as quick as they kick out non-equity partners in a lot of ways. So I wonder if a lot of younger lawyers and associates are simply sitting down looking at the, at the, at the landscape and saying, it's not really, what do I get when I become part of, is it really worth it? Cause I don't see what I'm getting for this deal. I, you know, I can, I can, I have to, I have to, I have to work in the vineyard a lot longer. And even when I'm done, I still don't have the same sort of situation that many people, particularly my age, had when when we became partners. So it's it, I, you know, it, maybe it's just part and parcel of law firms becoming much more like businesses, um, which you know, and I mean, there there are many people in businesses who will say to themselves, you know, I I don't 
I don't really want to be CEO. I don't really want to be COO. I'll, I'll, I'll work to my level where I'm happy and that'll be the end of it. And maybe that's kind of what we're seeing with, uh, with associates now. So that, that's anyway, that, that kind of, kind of hit me when I, when I read that cravat, which has always been one of the sort of lock, white shoe sort of lockstep compensation, which I think they've also gotten away from and are turning into doing the same thing a lot of other firms are. Yeah, it's it's not a uh, it's it's not a stepping stone to equity partner though, right? I mean, it wouldn't be you kind of go from a like, senior associate either either I, one way or the other, right? Well, I think it. I think a lot of times it is. At least yeah, you know, the firm I was with, it was. Yeah, yeah. And that maybe it's not true, and it's hard to generalize because you know a lot of firms are different. But and and one of the points that Joe made in his in the podcast, which I thought was a very good one, is that it it really it. But first and maybe still disproportionately impacted women and uh, minorities, uh, you know, because, oh, well, you know, she's going to raise kids and that's going to be a problem and they're not going to get the same effort and blah, 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 blah. And the other point that Joe raised is this sort of this attitude that these kids, these these young lawyers these days, they're not as good and smart as we are. I mean, they just, you know, they're just, we're just smarter and better than they are, which is a little bit of that too. Well, the- that's been going on forever. I mean, I don't know if I've shared on this show or not, but I'm pretty sure I did. But the reason I left the law firm I was at years ago was because, and keeping in mind, I handled employment discrimination lawsuits on plaintiff and defense side for the firm. The managing partner told me during my annual review that I would have made partner that year if I hadn't gone on maternity leave and they were going to let me go and you know, make me partner next year. And I just decided, I was like, yeah, I gave him like two weeks notice, like three days later, yeah. I'm, like, yeah, I'm out because- how are you going to succeed? And I decided, if, or even before that, I think that I didn't want to be a partner there, but that definitely sealed the deal. And I think that the fact that that's still happening, <laughs> this, right. you know, now, just, a, just, a, just, in a, just in another way, right? They, yeah, they, yeah. Today, they probably would have said, that's okay, Nikki, we'll make you a non-equity partner. Right. That's fine. <laughs> right. That's probably yeah. what would happen at that firm, even back then, I bet. But um, yeah. I have one thing I did want to mention, I don't know if you guys uh, on the panel saw, but two different people messaged us that it was just announced that uh, uh, Kevin O'Keefe told us and also um, uh, Arjan uh, uh, told us that uh, OpenAI just pushed uh, the CEO out. Sam Altman was just announced, like breaking news during our webcast. (laughs) Yeah, I just tuned out and started reading their statement. They're definitely pushing him out. They don't no longer have confidence in his ability. Apple wasn't anything we said here. (laughs) That, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, the, uh, I'm getting low on time, but uh, there were a couple of us had also put on our picks for stories this week. The uh, you're mute, Bob. Are you talking about Predicta, Bob? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I just my finger came off my uh, space bar there. Uh, yeah, the the. Uh, the news about Predicta, and I know, I think Gene, you wrote about it, I wrote about it, I think Steve, you were talking about Cassandra wrote about it. Um, and uh, Predicta is, of course, this uh, predictive analytics, which is also what Steve queued up a few minutes ago, uh, site that has been really the only one out there in the past that has said that it will actually predict outcomes for motions to dismiss. Uh, most other analytics platforms will tell you they're not, they don't intend to be predictive. They really just try and give you uh, 
some odds basically on, on how things they give you trends they give you trends they right. tell you things how gone in the past and it's up to you to figure out right but he he actually right. says he has an algorithm his secret sauce that makes it work 85 percent of the time right right for, which I noticed he reduced from, it used to be 86.9 or something. I, I asked him about that. He said, oh, I don't know, we've just been well, recalculating it or something. But but now he's expanded it to other motions, except the other motions he's expanded to are still not, they are also not predictive. They're just trends again. Uh, but but what they do, what he does try and do, uh, and I, I saw, I know Gene, you picked up on this in your post that I wrote about it too, because he used the word a lot, but try and find doppelgangers. So. You know, for a particular kind of emotion, a judge may never have ruled on that particular kind of emotion. But if you could find judges and courts and cases that are effectively doppelgangers for those situations, then you can somewhat come up with some, uh, you know, some analytics on how it might turn out in, in, in the case that you're involved in at any given but, moment. I, I thought that was a pretty interesting. Right. But Bob, let's talk about what he's doing. Yeah. What he is doing. It's not what anybody else in the analytics business is doing. He goes out and he finds personal characteristics about the judges. Where did they go to law school? Are they married or single? What's their zip code? Did they ever work in a law firm? He gets all of this personal information that actually you could argue about. And I and I tried to argue, the first time I interviewed with him, I argued and argued and argued. And he said to me, the statistics don't lie. We have 86, it doesn't matter that you don't believe it. We have 86% accuracy. Don't argue with me because just look at how it works. So it's not like, it's, it's like, it's not really looking at the judge's ruling history. That's like a factor, but it's not that important. What's really important right. is what what are all the weird, hidden socioeconomic things that have impacted this lawyer's thinking throughout his life? And that's how he does the doppelgangers. And that's how he does the, the, the right. rules. I mean, it's so, it is so opposite of what everybody else right. is doing in analytics. Yeah. But to, Go ahead, I, well, but no. to be the um, devil, devil's advocate only because I was saying the same thing that you were saying, and I was pretty impressed with it, Gene. And I was at a subsequent conference, and let's, I mean, preface this: I'm, I was talking with somebody who has um, software that does uh, also does analytics, but the old school way, for lack of a better word. So they had some skin in the game. But what this, and I honestly don't remember who it was. What they told me was that. If you take any of those specific motions um, that and factor in certain things without all of that data, it still comes around 85% accuracy. So that they're just saying it's like a marketing um, shtick. And that really that, that all that extra stuff doesn't even really matter. And you're still going to have the same accuracy rates. That's what this person was told me. But they absolutely had skin in the game. So, And I don't know enough about um, this type of technology to be able to decipher <laughs> which one of them is pulling the wool over my eyes on that. But yeah, I thought well, the, the the interesting thing I've thought about it when I and I talked to him too and sort of posed the question that if 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 what he is doing works, you know, wouldn't the next step be to use it on on jury panels, which in a way weren't is they already what, doing that? Well, that's what I was just getting ready to say. In a way, is kind of what jury consultants sort of do, right? I mean, they, yeah. because they don't have past decisions about me as a juror, but they do look at certain factors and 
try try to estimate or guesstimate, I guess, I don't know which it is, how a particular person with these characteristics might might rule. Um, so, there, you know, it's... Judges, they, they should be, at least in theory, if not in reality. Wouldn't you think that jurors would be more swayed by where they come from because they don't, and they also don't understand the law or have legal training, uh, whereas judges are supposed to be analytical and shouldn't be nearly as swayed by their um, political predispositions and socioeconomic backgrounds or whatever you would yeah, think. But that's I don't fair. The, the other <laughs> thing, the other thing should yeah. be, yeah. But yeah, you know what? Yeah. He also, he also, one point we were talking about that, and he said his analysis showed that actually Democratic lawyers tended to rule in favor of corporations more than Republican ones. Like he said, he said, if you go down and look at the data, he said, you'll get some really surprising results. <laughs> The, the other mean, thing one I, of the things we all see is is I you know in in Massachusetts I think some some oh no oh I feel like I'm going to be so good I know that was going to be <laughs> no. did I just get lost again am I yeah. again? Uh, am I here <laughs> no. yes. can you hear me. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's painful. <laughs> well, while, while Bob is trying to come back, <laughs> all right. I don't know. Now you're yeah, now you're back. What did you just say? He's well, anyway, now. <laughs> uh, one of the things I was wondering with this, with the, the new things he's doing, like motions to compel. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how the approach would would go with that. I mean, that's sort of like if you take a judge with thirty years of experience ruling on lawyer objections, you know, they're probably going to rule differently than a beginning judge. <laughs> so funny it's like it just it's never stops. Halloween. <laughs> it's just, it's part fun. of the simula it's part of the simulation right <laughs> it reminds me of like when people get stuck on the holodeck in star trek he's like stuck in the holodeck oh <laughs> well, i feel it's all right it's five minutes to four and either bob I'm has to type sure. what he was going to say in the comments because everybody wants to know what you were going to say or else maybe we uh, close this one out. No, no. Did we get all that? I think we got all that. <clears throat> I think that we have covered everything that everyone wanted to talk about. Well, Bob looks happy. I'll say that for him. <laughs> <laughs> he leaves with a smile on his face and a song they know, in his heart. Whenever, whenever I freeze, it's in like the worst yeah. contorted face <laughs> right. position, right? Yeah. 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 No, Bob. No. Uh, no. <laughs> no, we can't hear you, Bob. It's like the robots have taken over, Bob. Finally. <laughs> also, I think we should. There's the Kravitz story that I saw you at, Stephen, or we can just call it because it's usually one of our. I talked about the Kravitz thing. Oh, yeah. you did. I missed that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I feel like we have uh, uh, worked through all the topics, and Bob is buffering. So, and it's painful. <laughs> so maybe we should. Call this one and Bob uh, is buffering. I like that. <laughs> head into the weekend, uh, and then next Friday, I don't think we're going to be here, right? Because Thanksgiving right. passing. So, right. can we well, hear everybody? Bob? Hi, 
Do you want to try to close it out, Bob? It's not there. All right. <laughs> All right, all. Have a great weekend. Take care. Everybody Bye, have a good everyone. Thanksgiving. So long. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving.